Hi, this is Vicky from the AOCPP. Just before we start the podcast, I'd like to let you know about a major event we're holding on Thursday, October the 15th. Rising domestic abuse and the effect on children during COVID-19 has a host of experts tackling this critical issue. Book for this and any of our events at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Really hope to see you there. Welcome to the AOCPP podcast. The podcast brought to you by the Association of Child Protection Professionals, where we, alongside expert guests, discuss important issues within child protection and safeguarding. There has never been a more important time to keep up with child protection and safeguarding, but with regulation frequently changing, we realise not all professionals have the time to do so. That's why we've created this podcast, to give you what you need to stay informed. Every week, we'll be inviting child protection professionals with expertise in either research or practice to share their learnings. In each episode, we'll be taking a focused look at a singular issue that you need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we'll be talking with a professional at the forefront of the issue. Hello, I'm Wendy Thurigood, the chair of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Sarah Steele about fabricator-induced illness and the professional dilemmas that come along with it. It's widely recognised and acknowledged across the health, police and social care economies that fabricator-induced illness by carers is one of the most challenging areas of child protection in which to work. Practitioners have to make an extremely exacting professional judgments and can experience various levels of stress when addressing multiple complex issues in such cases. Hobbes et al. refer to FII as a deceptive, secretive and interactional liaison, which has at its centre the child, the doctor or other professionals and the perpetrator. It is imperative, therefore, that all professionals recognise the risk from the very start of the case as a first step towards not only better protecting the child victims, but also beginning to protect the professionals themselves from being negatively impacted by the inherent divisiveness of such cases, as well as from being potentially entrapped in an abusive cycle. Having a heightened professional awareness of the intrinsic risks of FII cases can be a first step to helping prevent any conflicts and issues as they arise on the front line. Dr Sarah Steele is an independent child safeguarding consultant and formerly head of safeguarding and consultant nurse at a large university NHS foundation trust. She has over 15 years experience as a practitioner, manager, teacher and strategic leader specialising in child protection in both community and acute settings. Sarah is currently the director of Patronus Child Protection Consultancy, which provides specialist advisory services, including expert advice, guidance and support on a range of aspects of child protection safeguarding to national and regional organisations, both in the UK and beyond. Sarah has a particular interest in and significant experience of managing the full range of fabricated and induced illness spectrum across the multi-agency and acute hospital settings. She contributed to the DCSF 2008 National Guidance document, as well as co-developing a local standard operation procedure with a senior police colleague in 2015 to facilitate and support enhanced collaborative multi-agency working across such complex cases. 
she has developed and supported the implementation of comprehensive and wide-ranging programs of child protection training for all levels of multi-agency staff, including FII training and presentations. Most recently, she has reviewed and commented on the draft new RCPCH FII guidance document, which is due for publication in the near future and has contributed to the IHV 2020 FII Good Practice Points programme. So thank you for joining us today, Sarah, and welcome to this. This is an area that I know is dear to your heart as well as mine. So I feel sure that we're going to be able to have a really good interactive conversation and sparked from your presentation the other day, which was fantastic. We know that there is a lot of interest and professionals are struggling with this. So over to you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Wendy, for inviting me. And also thank you for the very gracious introduction. So as you know, I have a a professional interest in fabrication-induced illness. And I developed that in a previous role where I was a consultant nurse and head of service in child safeguarding. And I developed it mainly because of the number of cases that we were having to deal with on a fairly regular basis. And those cases were right across the FII spectrum. And some of them we ended up in court with, some the police deployed covert video surveillance with. So we were into the extreme end, the induction of illness. And I thought it was an appropriate time to refresh our conversation around FII because, as I'm sure all of our colleagues listening in know, the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health have developed some new guidance, and we're expecting that to be published hopefully later this year, or if not, early next year. Yeah, no, there's been a delay. We've been waiting for the perplexing presentation work to come out for nearly 18 months, isn't it, Mm -hmm. now? Um, Yeah. So we're hoping that it's not going to be too much longer. Yeah, because it's a good document. And the particular angle I would like to explore today is solutions to some of the professional dilemmas that, as you said, can and do arise on the front line when we're managing and dealing with these cases. So without further ado, I thought we might start looking at some of those solutions. And I know you wanted to ask me about culture change first. Yes. We do need culture change in this area, don't we? So what's your perspective? Well, I really like the article written by Dr. Paul Davis last year, 2019. They wrote two articles. Danny Glazer was involved and Una Murtha as well. And many good points in that article. But one of the points that struck me quite forcibly was when they said that problems can arise in FII cases for professionals when the professional accepts the offer of illness from the abusing parent. And I thought that was true. I agree with it. But a thought occurred to me around, are we assuming perhaps a more equal relationship between the professional and the manipulative abusing parent than actually exists in reality for professionals on the front line when in the midst of these what can be overwhelming cases. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I work quite closely in relation to um, trying to understand the perpetrator's background and what is she trying to achieve. Is she continually presenting this child because she's anxious or because she's actually inducing? And I think 
they get blurred with some professionals. They immediately want to instigate the procedures that are in place at the moment without actually trying to stop and think. I talk a lot about a stop and think meeting. Really, what is going on here? Can we have an impartial view of what's going on and what's the background? And I use it from work that I did very early on, on as a sister on special care where people would present their children because they were hyper anxious and they thought their children were higher at risk, but they weren't doing any harm. They were just had this anxiety. It's when it tips over to actually inducing an illness. And it's, it's about teasing out and professionals having an understanding about why things are happening. Mm. Um, but sometimes the, the way the current policies and procedures are set up, it can take too long to actually perhaps come for an independent review or even a stop and think meeting. And maybe people have been building up this case and these chronologies and there's a massive delay in actually getting the right help and intervention. I, I'd agree with that, Wendy. You've made some really, a number of really good points there, actually. And motivations, interesting as they are, I think it was not where I'll go today. But in terms of motivation, I just wanted us to remember that I think this probably broad agreement across the multi-agency landscape now, that the essence of this unusual and still absolutely uncommon form of child abuse is the key fact that a child is at the centre of it, a child mm. is suffering, apparently through deliberate actions of the main carer, quite often, but not always, the biological mother, which is then wrongly attributed to another cause, often a medical cause. And, and I mean, that just reminds me a little bit of Hobbes' description. And as you said earlier, we don't have any one definition or any university agreed definition of FII. But just something Hobbes, Hanks and Wynne produced in 2000, which I think is still a good definition, because I think it's helpful in the context of solutions to dilemmas. And I'll just quickly quote him where he said FII was a deceptive, secretive, interactional liaison, which has at its centre the child, but also the doctor or other professional and the perpetrator and I think that feeds into the Danny Glazer and, and Davis and Martha article around culture change as a possible solution to some of these dilemmas that we're coming across on the front line. Mm. So that would be where I would go with it. Yeah, the professionals are still apprehensive about challenging, aren't they? And I think the policies err on the side of caution, but rather than when they're having a conversation or they may be formulating that idea that possibly mm -hmm. this isn't what it seems mm -hmm. to be, I don't feel professionals will actually offer any sort of challenge, even if it's just really mm -hmm. clarifying what's going on. So tell me again how this happened, looking at the child, you know, how did you, the child's old enough to interact? Yeah. And I think there are things that we can do just routinely challenging it when we're in those situations, mm -hmm. the acute. And if a child comes in drowsy, a doctor could quite legitimately say, I'm just going to do a blood culture to see if anything's going on for infection, because there you could see if there'd been any inducement and you've got it right from the start. Mm -hmm. But people mm -hmm. seem reluctant do you is that I do agree with that I do agree with that and I think that's again when you look at accepting that offer of illness because there isn't that challenge and because I think health professionals automatically believe what a parent will tell them that's how we in pediatrics work social care the same I actually think our police colleagues are far better at having that healthy professional scepticism actually mm -hmm. 
we certainly enhance, we could learn from our police colleagues there. And I think by not challenging and by accepting that offer of ill health, we can inadvertently collude, as Dave Zidal say, with the abusing parent and get pulled into a cycle quite inadvertently. Therefore, I do agree with Dave Zidal that culture change is necessary. And I think picking up on perhaps Herbert Laming in his 2003 inquiry and his review in 2009, along with Professor Eileen Monroe, that, again, having a healthy scepticism, being able to challenge. I think somebody said years ago, thinking the unthinkable, you know, because, of course, we don't expect parents to lie to us or to hurt their children or put them through these awful investigations. So I do agree with you there. I think polite professional challenge. So, yeah, I, I think the other thing that's just coming into my head is something Monroe said around the child protection cases, having a high degree of uncertainty and just having to be alert to all aspects, really, of, of what might be going on in that case. Because some professionals actually are concerned to challenge in case they're going yes. to do more harm. Yes. So what can we say to those professionals that are reluctant to challenge and would wait? Well, I think we have to bear in mind with these cases, the spectrum of FII, that challenging can increase the risk to the child more so than in other forms of abuse. And of course, there's a spectrum. There's always been a spectrum. And I think the Royal College in the CP Companion from 2013, when they named some of the spectrum as perplexing presentations or medically unexplained symptoms, I think lots of people found that very helpful. And perhaps there's more room for manoeuvre in terms of challenging on that end of the spectrum. But I think we have to be very careful how and when we do. And I actually think it has to probably be on an individual case basis. Definitely consideration that particular mother or, or um, abuser and the child and the particular circumstances because particularly if you're talking about uh, an acute setting then you're further along that spectrum and there's potentially more danger to the child so I think we have to be careful there. Yeah I mean it would be safe to do so if they knew that they could possibly admit the child and then observe mm -hmm. and just ask those questions mm -hmm. but if they were doing investigations and they were fearing some form of inducement to then let them go home and you've challenged would be quite an unsafe decision yes. wouldn't yeah. it yeah i think yes you're right it's safer to challenge in a controlled environment like a hospital if the child is an inpatient where they can be observed and the interaction with the parent can be observed yeah mm. absolutely Thinking about solutions as well, and this carries on from what you were saying, really, and is another key interest of mine. I think, you know, sort of intelligent, flexible interpretation and application of the legislation and guidance. And I say that because the experience on the front line, and I'm sure you've had it too, is that the national guidance doesn't always dovetail with local policies and procedures in the best interest of the child. And I think possibly... We've moved further along that line since the breakup of the LSCBs. And I think it's quite critical that we have, again, to use a sort of a term from the early noughties, joined up policies and procedures around child protection, but particularly around FII. And you, you raised another interesting point slightly earlier about referral, because, of course, the guidance, the national guidance, which is the 2008 DCSF document, that is the national guidance, is all around you refer with FII cases and with actual suspected abuse and neglect, actual suspected FII. So I think that's another interesting potential solution. 
just to have smarter, more joined up policies and procedures. And I think more child-centric policies and procedures, possibly. Mm. Again, thinking around solutions, and I think you touched on this earlier, around training, the specialist training. And I think some of our colleagues mentioned it last week as well, about the value of multi-agency training with police with social care and across the spectrum of health with psychiatric colleagues, child psychiatry and adult psychiatry, I think, when we're looking at FII. And I think that needs to be very high level and very regular. And I think we perhaps need to reclaim some of that good practice from the past. I don't know what you feel about that, Wendy. Definitely. The best training is if you can get, and you are key there in relation to getting the adult services around the table. There was one case that I was involved in and adult services were continuing to undermine what was happening in child safeguarding because of what they deemed the mother's personality disorder. And so they were making, not excuses, but it was getting pushed back. You know, she's not doing this on purpose. And it, it was quite fragmented. So bringing everybody together, looking at the training, as well as using that as a live case example, And we're lucky that that child is still alive today, actually, because of what was happening. And she was actually moving up to really harm the child under the disguise of a mental illness. And actually, she was quite rational. When she was actually admitted and observed, she had a very interesting personality. But yeah, very clever and was able to maintain what and why she'd done. But the work that actually went on with the child needed so much therapy because the child had been so harmed by the abuse that had gone on for years. And again, this was a complex situation because they were quite an affluent family. So this Mm -hmm. had been happening, child at a private school. So it was out of that remit of actually coming to our attention. And it was a very interesting case, but it did go on for nearly two years until we could really get to grips with it. Interesting. And an affluent family, that's something we come across quite often when we're looking and dealing with FII cases. But I'm glad you raised that about adult services, because one of the solutions, I think, is around this triangulation of information and working practices with adult services, but in real time. And the reason I feel strongly about that is a similar case. We had a child on an acute ward seven or eight weeks into the admission, not doing particularly well. Doctors began to get a little suspicious of what was going on. And at that point, the mother admitted herself via A&E with a heart attack. And when that consultant pediatrician went to the adult ward with some of his team to try and work with them, a lot of them just didn't know about FII. And that brought me back to some of the Royal College, the 2002 Professional Responses Study, where there was possibly denial, they weren't known about it, they didn't think it was their role to work with peds. So that's another very interesting aspect of this. And again, it just reinforces the need for that multi-agency, multi-professional training, I think, and this constant awareness raising of these cases. So I feel quite strongly about the triangulation of information, really, particularly in the context of these parents who, who harm their children. But of course, you can run up against the data protection issues there. You can run up against resource issues there. But it's practice. Information sharing has become an issue over the last, since the changes in the the information sharing governance, it's made it harder to actually have something as long as, but just to remind professionals that if it is something that you consider to be a safeguarding for a child, you can meet and you can talk as professionals. So even if they don't share the information beforehand, 
they can actually bring that information to that meeting as they work through it and it's recorded it can be professional only because of the situation just as you would maybe in some other safeguarding but as long as you're sticking to the policy and you're being firm about why you're meeting why you're sharing and you can but people do get hung up on the fact that they think you know you can't look at the adult records the particular challenge i often have with gps and adult mental health workers but like you say if they're all together in a room and you can have something like a stop and think meeting don't call it a strategy call it an information sharing uh, yes. because there are safeguarding concerns for that child so it's about getting the title right isn't it and setting that yes. scene yes. and equally I, I agree with you you've made some other very good points there and i think also one of the things just trying to reassure our gp colleagues who might be listening in the nice guidance is quite clear about their role also there's some excellent guidance out of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health the 2002 document the 2009 document the CP companion in 2013 it's really clear but that was one of the points I was trying to make earlier around why I'm so interested in legislation it's not just a thorough knowledge of the child protection child safeguarding legislation and the acts and the minutiae of the acts but also of data protection and that's one of the key messages that have come out of serious case reviews this erroneous interpretation and application, particularly of the data protection guidance, and I feel quite strongly about that. Also, you made another very good point about language, really, and meetings and what we call them. And, you know, I could give you multiple examples of that where, and it ties into where national legislation doesn't always dovetail with local policy, where there's a meeting and perhaps it was called a strategy meeting, and then they wanted a family group conference. So I think what you call a stop and think meeting is a great idea or professionals or an information sharing. And I think, again, it's about being sensible across the agencies about having those and what we call them in the best interest of the victim, which is the child. And that's I feel strongly about reclaiming not just the child's voice as a solution here, but the professional's voice as well. And you've brought me on nicely to another point I wanted to make in terms of solutions, and it's about the multi-agency chronologies. They're a favourite thing of mine, really good practice, and they are so helpful in identifying intergenerational abuse family patterns of illness and ill health. They're a good format for gathering evidence. The police like them. So, you know, I think it's just common sense, really. It's worth investing that time into that chronology. Mm. I feel that's the skeleton. It takes me back to, do you remember the fishbone? Do you remember? You can, yes. you can plan it out, can't you? That's how I analyse a chronology is looking right. And you can start mapping it, can't you? You can map the illnesses, the abuse, the behaviours, and you get a really good picture it does take time and professionals have to ask for time to be able to do that. But if we can get that purely as the foundation to spend that time and analyse it and see exactly what's going on from their Absolutely. perspective, it needs that critical eye and sensible things, not the fact that she's been for a smear. And, you know, sometimes you get really bizarre things that aren't relevant, but it can be a GP, you could, but you could cluster non-relevant GP appointments, couldn't you? Absolutely. And, and, and I think LSCBs developed excellent multi-agency chronologies and they're still out there. And there's a chronolator, which is so helpful in terms of serious case reviews as well. But I, I think they play a key role, the chronologies, in any multi-agency risk assessment of an FII case. So I think they're excellent. And again, I think something that Dave Zadell and Hobbs Zadell, another potential solution here, is about verification and substantiation of information around the child. And certainly in the article from Glazer and Davis and Myrtle last year, 
they really did flag that point about not accepting histories, carer reports, I think was how David Zadal put it, from this particular type of abuser, because it can lead on to fiction becoming fact in records, in medical records, in social care records. I think less so in police records, because again, our police colleagues are particularly good at cross-checking information, at triangulation, at chronologies. So I just think it's, it's a very important point in when we're trying to look at solutions to professional dilemmas in these cases. But as you rightly say, resource intensive, but good practice and worth it. And next on the agenda here, I wanted to talk a little bit, if it's okay with you, just about more nuanced and limited degrees of collaborative working with these parents, Wendy. And I know that this is quite contentious. And in fact, one of our social care colleagues, Winston, last week raised this point, which really I thought was an excellent point. He talked about the potential perception of professional deception and how he felt as a social worker, which I thought was so powerful. And I know from working with pediatricians for the last 15 years that they would feel extremely concerned as well. And it's not in any way that any health, social care or police professional is being deceptive. It's more about, I think, being very careful of professional boundaries, having clear role delineations. I think perhaps moving towards a more subtle professional interaction with these FII abusers in the best interest of the child, really, by you know, just being very, I like to call it pragmatically and exclusively child-centric and I think that's terribly important that we just move away from that full partnership working, which is very much in vogue, but isn't always appropriate for FII cases. I'd be really interested to hear your view on that. Yeah, I mean, you do need to form that relationship but with those professional boundaries. And it is that what the gut feeling is telling you that you need to actually explore and examine um, I was just going to say as well that on this track, there was a very good article from, I think it was 2005, from Southall. And there's still some really good stuff from Hobbs et al. around this as well, around just kind of being a little bit cautious or reserved, maybe. And I think police, again, are really, really good at doing this. And it also feeds back into what Monroe and Laming and Hobbs and some of the others you know, it's just, I think, reclaiming some of that good practice. I think health still have that rescue mentality, don't, mm. don't we? We still have that rescue sick medical model. That's what I'd said. Rescue sick medical model. And that's where we have to start thinking the unthinkable um, yeah. in relation to yeah. these cases. Yeah. And I, I think it doesn't come naturally always, which is why it seems a bit alien to them. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And the other point I wanted to make about solutions, because I have found it very effective in the past in reassuring professionals, is just having a whole look at the complaints. Because we know there is not only lots of anecdotal evidence, but also quite a bit of research-based evidence, that these sorts of perpetrators will feel quite comfortable using the complaints procedure. They can and they do, and it's a way of manipulating professionals. And I think one of the solutions could potentially be to just taking a quite different approach to that. And some of the things we did in the past was develop a different, a completely different separate specialist FII complaints procedure, which had as a first step involved named and designated staff. It also involved a very shortened time frame in terms of processing it, because quite often 
the complaint might have been about a consultant paediatrician because they're on the front line or health visitor perhaps or even a social worker and they might still be dealing with their child and family and perhaps didn't want to be moved but they should know about it as a way of protecting themselves and also things like assuming this was very important to colleagues this was the feedback we got that assuming that they they are innocent until proved otherwise if you like whereas i know that colleagues you know nationally feel quite unprotected when complaints happen and they perhaps feel they're alone so it was short in the process of keeping them in the loop, proactively offering more peer support and supervision, very empathetic wraparound supervision. So all of those things helped. And that was quite important in supporting and protecting staff was the feedback we got, but also in helping their confidence levels and making them more open to dealing with a case in the future, which again goes back to the Royal College Professional Responses Study of 2002. And it's getting managers to understand that process as well and HR because they are quick to actually follow their own internal policies where complaints are. So it, you're right, it's involving that designated mm -hmm. professionals that can help support people through that process and not always giving in to the complaints. Um, exactly. Because you then get the doctor shopping and the nurse shopping and you suddenly realise you've gone through a whole team and you're bending over backwards to accommodate the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. So it's about being firm and saying, well, this is the service that's being offered here. We will investigate, but at the moment you'll still be seeing that team. You might not always, I mean, health visitors now, you don't always see the same health visitor or school nurse. But the GP is about protecting and working with them in cases mm -hmm. and not being bullied by them, but making sure you get the organisational support. So you're quite right. It probably needs tweaking, which... I haven't actually seen any separate policies, but it's definitely something to think about nationally when we're looking at the new procedures for FII. And especially if the families have money. I mean, the case I Absolutely. referred to earlier, they got the lawyers involved. Mm -hmm. And so we had to engage lawyers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it starts getting quite expensive. Yeah, we do need to make steps for professionals. And certainly I developed a separate specialist complaints procedure and it worked and, and the feedback was very positive. And the other good point you made there, Wendy, was around our legal colleagues. Something else we did as part of that was to always involve the organisation legal team. They have such fantastic expertise, both in the sort of practical medical legal aspects, but also we found it in fortifying professional confidence and competence, particularly when professionals can feel somewhat diminished by these complainants, these abusive parents who complain them. So that was terribly important. And in-house needn't be that expensive if you're using your in-house, but it can be if you have to go out, as you, you, you say. I think one of the other good solutions is looking at proactive media management. That was the other thing we found very effective. Because, again, these perpetrators can or may feel quite comfortable using the media to manipulate public opinion. Or, again, as part of that power game with the professionals. So I think, you know, taking an organisational stance and or a multi-agency rather than this LSEBs, now the, the safeguarding partnership stance, a two very proactive, preemptive media management is useful. And not only in FII cases we found, we also found it in other high profile cases, court cases, SCRs. So that was another useful factor that some of our staff liked and felt protected and supported with. Definitely. No, definitely. I totally agree there. I must admit, I worked very closely with media on several, several cases. <laughs> I mean, it can be a double-edged sword, you know that. And I know certainly in the past, 
events have been presented within a very narrow conceptual frame. But, yeah, I think there is a role there. And I think possibly going forward in the future as well, re-educating the media and the public around FII, again, to reclaim what I call reclaiming the voice of the professional. The other solution that I would like to touch on today, because, again, it's quite contentious amongst professionals and amongst the public, is covert video surveillance. And all I wanted to say about that really was that excellent as the national guidance is, it is high level, broad brush. And one of the things I did in an area I worked was with some very senior police colleagues develop with, again, social care input and health input, a detailed local policy, which only, obviously it's a police controlled, as we know, it's all police controlled and implemented CVS. But having that multi-agency detailed policy in place should police deploy CVS was very, very helpful, actually. Didn't often happen, but it was very helpful. And professionals felt supported and protected by that as well, because there was something, there was a solid framework there, if you like. So that was also helpful. And just a final point to make, if I may, around solutions. We got a lot of feedback from staff, multi-agency staff, so across police, health and social care, around the value of very high-level, very skilled multi-agency debriefs once the case was over, once it was safe and legal to do so. So once the court case had finished or the the SCR had finished or the review of whatever sort. And that was something that was in great demand because professionals were sort of feeding back to us that it helped them, if you like, move on, move forward, but to rest that particular case and the traumas they may have suffered in it and move on. And it also helped them not be quite so anxious if they had to take another case in the future. So that was useful as well. And that always involved and was led by named and designated professionals but always with police and social care input and also with the organisational legal team input, but also with Oki Health, because one of the things we did was offer one-to-one Oki Health appointments to anybody traumatised by one of these cases, which was another way of supporting them. People can really feel traumatised. I mean, I think that's key. I mean, we talk about post-traumatic stress for police, but I think health professionals getting their head around what has actually gone on in certain some of these cases is can leave them feeling very powerless. I used to do very much similar to you is, is the debrief in a form of reflective supervision and lead to an action learning set. So we could almost along the lines of an appreciative inquiry, but I, I didn't call it that. I called it reflective supervision to try and get some outcomes to take people through that journey. And they found it quite cathartic because if you've lived and breathed something like this, it is really hard to come to terms with. And as I've said in the past, when I was at Guy's, I was part of covert surveillance. And really, that was my introduction to safeguarding and fabricating induced illness. And it just horrified me. But we got fantastic support at that time in relation, because having to watch a child be abused is almost like, to me, watching a horror film. I still, still can't see it now. But it is really important that we do remember that for professionals, because it is alien to how we actually sign up to our role, isn't it? So Sarah, that's been really powerful. I think professionals will get a lot from hearing our discussion in relation to sort of raising some of those practical points that they can think about from a different angle. And definitely as an association, I think this is an area that we could take forward and we can still support national development of policy and procedures and have those wider conversations with our members. And uh, we had such a fantastic sign up from the last special interest group, I think we can perhaps even offer a repeat in about 
four months time because we know training is few and far between and to actually develop a really robust multi-agency training package would be good so thank you for joining us today and talking about such a complex subject in relation to FII Please, if you have any comments, don't hesitate to contact AOCPP, who can help facilitate training and support in relation to this area. Many thanks. Wendy Thurgood, Chair of AOCPP. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want discussed in future episodes, email us at hello at aocpp.org.uk. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.